Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. So the other day, on a walk through the neighborhood, Ardell said, I wonder what would happen if I decided to give up duty for a minute. Of course, I immediately worried that she'd go on to say she was running away to join the circus with a handsome new friend who swallows flaming swords for a living, which didn't happen, I'm happy to report. She's back there. If it had, it would have been a much more interesting story to begin a sermon with than that we went on a walk and Ardell said, I wonder what would happen if I decided to give up duty for a minute. But hey, last week we stopped halfway through the story of David and Bathsheba, so there is plenty of story being served up for us today. In fact, as soon as the prophet Nathan shows up, we actually have a story within a story, don't we? So it may have been because we were hearing about David and Bathsheba that Ardell's question lingered for a few days. She was trying to put her finger on why different motivations in us, which all seem to be about how we go about leading an ethical life, can lead to very different ways of being in the world. In the moment, she chose the word duty, because it was a word that at least that day seemed related to that part of the self that wants to be a good person, or maybe that wants other people to see us as good people. She was wrestling with this realization, I think that when the goal is my own dutiful goodness, well, it's kind of all about me, is it not? All right, maybe because, maybe we'll come back to that walk in a little bit, but let's return to the story. Because David and Bathsheba is nothing if not an ethical tale. David has been taking shape as a complicated character for several weeks in our lectionary readings. We've seen him go from the handsome but overlooked shepherd boy to God's chosen one as Israel's king. We saw him as a sensitive musician and also a slayer of Goliath. He was a threat to King Saul's ego and a beloved friend to Saul's son, Jonathan. And we watched him as newly anointed king dance into Jerusalem before the Ark of the Covenant, wearing a linen ephod, which I don't think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, is not only rather skimpy, as his wife Michal pointed out, but is also a garment worn by a priest. So if anybody's ever been the full package, it's this David, right? David, the handsome songwriter and brave soldier, and finally the beloved king who's also seen as some kind of priest in a culture where priests were hardly marginal. Priests were the ones who anointed the king. So right about here, someone might ask, good grief, what doesn't this David have? To which the story answers, Bathsheba. And then we see that for all his accomplishments and accumulations, there is something frighteningly missing from David's moral self. In last week's reading, in case you missed it, David had recently become king of this briefly united kingdom of Judah and Israel. He was surveying all that he now ruled and saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, bathing on her roof. So he he wanted her 
So he went to her, got her pregnant, and then tried to cover it all up. He gave Uriah a leave from his soldierly duties, assuming when he got home he would perform his husbandly duties, and nobody would know Bathsheba's child was the king's. But Uriah was too loyal to his fellow soldiers and couldn't imagine spending the night in the arms of his wife when his comrades were out in the fields doing battle. So he slept in the doorway of David's house with the servants. The cover-up was spoiled. David tried one more time by getting Uriah drunk, still to no avail. So he had Uriah himself carry a letter to his commander, instructing him to put Uriah on the front lines the next day. And when the battle got heated, he was to pull his men back so that Uriah would be struck down and die. By the way, if there's a little too much sex and violence in the Bible for you, there is a brilliant VeggieTales cartoon on similar themes. It's the one in which King George the Cucumber has more rubber duckies in his bathtub than he possibly knows what to do with, but he sees the poor little spear of asparagus named Thomas has a ducky as well and won't rest until he has it. I think if you can get to the moral essence of a story with vegetable characters and a plot that turns on the threat of an asparagus getting into creamed soup, We are in the realm of the archetypal. (laughs) Anyway, that's where we left off last week, which sets everything up for Nathan the prophet's confrontation with David in our reading today. Now, one problem I think we have with this story is that there's nothing more pleasing to us than the downfall of a powerful person. Of all the plot lines in all the movies you've ever seen, How many of them involve somebody finally getting what he deserves, whether justice is delivered by way of blazing six-shooters or falling anvils or that withering speech we all wish we could deliver in real time just once to put that person, and I know you've got someone in mind, right in their place? Best of all is actually when that powerful person's downfall comes by way of an underdog. You know, a David and Goliath story? Wait a minute, what's happened here? Is David the new Goliath? Where's a boy with a sling when you need one to set things right? We've been set up here, have we not? We've had our moral antennae all dialed into a story we think we know, a story in which the moral universe is brought neatly back into order. Good guys will be sorted from bad ones, and we can tell our kids that crime really doesn't pay. And then that's not the story we get at all. Because David doesn't get what he deserves. Not even close. In fact, nobody in this story gets what they deserve, do they? Bathsheba is objectified and impregnated by a powerful man who has her husband killed in an attempt to cover up a scandal. Uriah wouldn't have died if he weren't such a virtuous man who couldn't in good conscience enjoy an evening with his wife if his fellow soldiers were at war. Uriah's goodness is precisely what gets him killed. And all David gets for it is his lust, deception, and murder is a little fable about a lamb from a prophet and maybe a suggestion there will be family problems down the road. What gives? Well, let me suggest that we readers have been set up, but we've been set up for a reason. 
We've been set up because the deepest kind of moral transformation may not happen in this world like we think it does or wish it would. The brilliance of the story is that we're all Davids on some level. It is so easy for me to see what's wrong in somebody else. Nathan shows David to himself only by making him think he's looking at somebody else. Someone at whom all of David's righteous indignation and moral superiority is aroused to set things right in the world. And then what might be the most unbelievable thing in David's whole unbelievable saga happens. Nathan's fable works. David actually sees that he's the man he's just judged. And more importantly, he sees himself in a way that may just be truthful enough for him to begin seeing the people around him for who they are too. David had a moral blindness about himself that blinded him to the humanity of the people around him. And this is our condition as well. When we couch the ethical or the Christian life as our duty to do good things or to be good people, sometimes my virtue is something I'm adding to this resume I'm building up along the way in my life. For David, the resume was pretty impressive. Good looks? Check. Musical ability? Check. Charisma? Check. Bravery in battle? Check. Wealth? Check. Beautiful women? Check. Political and religious power? Check. Moral uprightness. Nathan exposes David as he was trying to check his personal ethics box with that story about a poor man's lamb. David's moral outrage, at least initially, wasn't about the poor man. It was self-serving. A relishing in being so much better than that, which I'm afraid is what almost all moral outrage is a form of, is it not? Everything was all about David until he saw himself for who he was. And only when he saw himself truthfully did he begin to see the people around him for who they were. And he said, what we will move heaven and earth to ever have to say, I was wrong. Isn't it ironic that when I look in on this story and begin to get indignant that David doesn't get what he deserves, that's precisely when I become David. That's when I become the moralistic, judgmental person whose hypocrisy this story is trying to expose to himself so that he, so that, so that I can let go of this project of becoming a good person compared to the rest of you flawed human beings and begin to see myself and the people around me for who they truly are. For this kind of truthful seeing is still the precondition for the healing God wants us to be part of in this broken down world. Ardell and I kept wrestling with what she was getting at when she wondered if giving up duty might be a good thing. And she said, it seems that when my goal is about wanting to be a good person or wanting to be seen as a good person, it turns into a really negative sense of duty a vague worry that I should be someone else or do something else, as opposed to living a life that's truly focused on my fellow human beings, as opposed to a deep sense that I'm beholden to my fellow humans and to myself. 
This makes so much sense to me. I had her repeat it and typed it out so I could pass it on to you right here. When she edited this sermon, as she always does, you have no idea what nonsense she spares you. She, she said I ought to add that the two of us don't generally walk around unpacking deep moral and psychological mysteries. If we do, it's probably because a last-ditch effort to quiet that unhelpful chatter that started spinning so urgently in one of our heads at 2 o'clock the last morning. But friends, the strange ancient thing we do here, gathering around these old stories and wondering what they might have to do with lives like ours may not be about becoming better individuals, better Christians, better Episcopalians, even better human beings. Maybe we gather around these stories and listen to what God is, might be saying to us through them because the world is still broken by our inability to see ourselves or our neighbors for who they truly are. And David's great, 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 great grandchild will one day tell us that at the heart of what God hopes for us is that we learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, don't you think that for any meaningful love of a neighbor neighbor or of a self, it has to begin with letting go of my dutiful self-improvement projects at least long enough to see those neighbors and even to see that self for who and what we truly are. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.